Hey everybody, welcome back to Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm Jesse Bartholomew, and you all seem to enjoy when I told the story from Kevin McQueen's book, The Head on the Mound. Um, I got good feedback from that one, and it got a really high number of listens. And so I thought for Halloween, it might be nice for me to go through all of my books related to Kentucky ghosts, Kentucky true crime, myths, and legends, and I put together a list of some of my favorite short stories relating to all of these things, so I thought this would make a great Halloween episode, or two, or three. So I will be sure to link to all of the books I'm reading from in the show notes and on the website so you all can go get copies for yourself, because of course, these stories that I'm going to be reading you are just a few of many many stories. I'm going to start with a few from the book Haunted Kentucky, Ghosts and Strange Phenomena of the Bluegrass State by Alan Brown. Our first story is called The Headless Nun of Bethlehem Academy. Settlers did not move into Hardin County until Captain Thomas Helm, Colonel Andrew Hines, and Colonel Samuel Haycraft built a triangular group of stockades for defense against Indians. Thomas Lincoln, Abraham's father, was among the first settlers in Hardin County. One of the towns that grew up around these forts was Elizabethtown. Named after the wife of Colonel Andrew Hines, Elizabethtown was legally established on July 4, 1797. In the early 1800s, in an area around Elizabethtown known as Harcourt, the log home of Sylvester Borman was used as a house of worship for the five Catholic families who were living in Hardin County at the time. The county's first resident pastor, Father Charles J. Sissel, served several area missions from Bethlehem Academy, a girls' school that was established in 1820. The academy was located on 580 acres that John L. Helm, twice governor of Kentucky, had sold for $2,240 to Father Sissel. The Sisters of Loretto, who ran the academy, used the Helm mansion as the school's main building, Wings were added around 1848. Throughout most of its history, Bethlehem Academy served as both a grade school and high school. It had facilities for 25-day students and 75 boarding students. The academy closed in 1959, and the Helm Mansion was restored in 1981. Over the years, it has housed a hotel and a restaurant But residents of Elizabethtown still talk about the ghost of the murdered woman who haunts the building. According to a version of the legend collected in 1970 by Western Kentucky University student Penny Vance, three nuns remained in Bethlehem Academy after it closed in 1959. They were awaiting their transfer to another school. During the winter, One of the nuns entertained herself and her sisters by playing the organ in the assembly room on the third floor. One night, two of the nuns were sitting quietly, listening to the organ music, when the performance was interrupted by a blood-curdling scream. Alarmed by the tales they had heard about a madman running amok in the area, the two sisters resisted the temptation to investigate the source of the scream. 
The next day, several neighbors accompanied them upstairs, where they found the headless corpse of the third nun lying on the floor of the assembly room in a pool of blood. Neither her head nor her murderer were ever found. Ghostly activity has been recorded in the building that housed Bethlehem Academy for many years. Diners in the restaurant have encountered cold spots in certain areas. Servers have sometimes left an object in a specific location, only to have it moved to a different spot a few hours later. It is said that on cloudy nights, passers-by have heard the ghostly nun playing the organ. They've also seen lights being turned off and on, and windows left open in the building long after it was closed. The absence of leaves on the trees surrounding the old school is attributed to bad vibes created by the murder of the nun. The uneasy feeling that some people experience in Bethlehem Academy seems to be affecting even the grounds of the old school. Our next story is from the Kentucky Book of the Dead by Kevin McQueen, and it's called The Old Bailey House. Two miles north of Dunville, Casey County, there once stood beside the road between Jamestown and Somerset, a structure known as the Old Bailey House. It was a very decrepit and very large building that allegedly had been an inn in better times. Early in its history, it was a hangout for a gang of counterfeiters who were also thought to be robbers and highwaymen. The house remained empty for years. In late March, 1897, William Turner and his family moved in. On their first night in the house, Turner's oldest son was awakened by the archetypical sounds of a haunted house. Moans, groans, and the sounds of people walking around in the rooms adjoining his. By the time the boy persuaded his father to investigate, the noises had stopped. Mr. Turner found the situation amusing. He did not think it so droll the next night around midnight when he was awakened by the same sounds in his own bedroom. He tried to discern whether a natural source could be causing the noises, but found none. However, when he looked at the doorway, he found an unnatural source. A tall, apparently female figure clad in white. She had only one thing to say and said it with vigor. Move! Turner agreed with her and cleared his family out of the Old Bailey house before sundown. The patriarch of the clan was heard to remark that he could not be induced to remain in the house for $100,000. The word got out about the Turner family's absquatulation, and a few brave young lads of Dunville decided to spend the night in the house to see if anything would happen. After spending an uneventful hour in the bedroom where William Turner had seen the ghost, they were ready to go home. Then, they heard an ear-splitting scream, seemingly coming from under the floorboards. This was followed by a potpourri of moans, groans, and cries of terror. All went silent for a moment, then the sounds recommenced with greater fury. Within moments, the brave young lads were raising clouds of dust on the road back to Dunville. The Old Bailey House was the talk of the county the next day. Crowds of the curious searched the building for any evidence of hauntings, in broad daylight, it is understood. 
When investigators pried up the floorboards, they found three long holes in the dirt that obviously had been there a long time. Their resemblance to makeshift graves was convincing enough to attract the interest of the Casey County coroner, James Shelton, who summoned a jury. It was theorized that the highwaymen who had occupied the house long ago had temporarily buried victims under the floor until a permanent resting place could be found for them. By that point, the Old Bailey House was a source of nightmares for many villagers who regarded it as being haunted to the rafters. But then, William Cravens of Russell County moved into the neighborhood. He was looking for an affordable house, and the Bailey place caught his eye. He was warned about the ghost, but he said, no doubt with a magnificent sneer, that he was afraid of no haunts, and he leased the house at a bargain price. The Cravens family slept well the first night. So concerned were the neighbors about their welfare that a party came by the next day to see whether the Cravens had been, well, Cravens and fled in the night. Mr. Cravens reassured his well-wishers that there was no such thing as haunts, and what was more, he wouldn't be afraid of them, even if they did exist. Perhaps the ghost took that as a challenge, for at midnight on the second night, Cravens was awakened by the noises. Somehow he convinced himself that they were imaginary and went back to sleep. Not for long, though. He felt an icy hand pass over his face, and he opened his eyes just in time to see something white walk across the room and through the door. Mrs. Cravens whispered, Did you see that thing? It stood by my bed and told me to move. And move, the Cravens did, the next day. Most ghost stories would end on that note of ignominious defeat, but in this case, the press account came with a signed endorsement by two prominent citizens. Dunville, Kentucky, April 26, 1897. To whom it may concern, the undersigned, Ed Pelly, merchant, and Thomas Chelf, tavern keeper of Dunville, certify that they know the Bailey House, which is said to be haunted, that they know the Cravens and Turner families moved it from it on account of curious disturbances at night, which they could not account for and which terrorized them, and that a party which Mr. Chelf, one of the undersigned, accompanied to the house to make inquiry into the singular things reported, became scared and left because of a recurrence of things described by Cravens and Turner. We know further that three graves were found beneath the floor of the old house, that Coroner Shelton investigated the case, and that the people in the neighborhood of the Bailey House are many of them afraid to pass it at night. Our next story is from Haunted Kentucky by Alan Brown, and it's called The Mystery of the Screaming Woman. On November 21st, 2003, between 9 and 10 p.m., a psychologist named Dr. Virgil Davis was driving toward his home in Moorhead. Riding with him were his two sons, ages 15 and 18. They were almost home when suddenly they witnessed a bright, oval-shaped craft flying over a field near their house. 
Dr. Davis described the craft as moving erratically, like a hummingbird, quite a distance from the ground. After a few minutes, it moved down a hundred feet or so, stayed in that position a few minutes, then dropped a little farther and remained there for a while, like an elevator moving from floor to floor. Dr. Davis and his sons watched the object for three or four minutes, then it darted to different parts of the sky. They stopped the car and got out for a better look. After watching the craft for a few minutes, they concluded that it was a UFO, not a helicopter or the Aurora Borealis, as they had suspected at first. As soon as they got home, they raced up the stairs to the second floor, eager to catch another glimpse of the strange craft. Staring out of a bedroom window toward the northeast, they watched the UFO descend into the field. The white light it was emitting gradually changed to a reddish glow. All of the normal outdoor sounds ceased at that moment as an eerie silence settled on the scene outside. Then, all of a sudden, a neighbor's dog began barking frantically. Other animals joined in, howling and barking wildly. After a few seconds, the now red object accelerated and shot off into the darkness. Dr. Davis and his sons had been standing at the window, transfixed, for at least 10 minutes. Immediately after the UFO vanished into the night sky, the two boys ran downstairs and charged through the front door. Almost right away, they returned to the house, claiming, between gasps for breath, that they had heard a woman in the field screaming, help me, oh my God, help me. 20 minutes later, about 20 police officers and a rescue squad showed up at the field where Dr. Davis and his sons had seen the UFO land. One of the policemen told Dr. Davis that others had heard the screaming as well. The fire department scanned the area with a thermal imaging camera, but no evidence of a human presence could be found. Because no one had submitted a missing persons report, the police terminated the investigation. Most of the authorities ascribed the Davis's sighting of the UFO to the Northern Lights, which several witnesses from the Rockford area had seen a couple days before. A few weeks later, however, a UFO researcher interviewed a woman who claimed that she and her daughter had also seen a UFO on the night of November 21st. Her description of the behavior of the strange craft matched that given by Dr. Davis and his sons. In addition, a crop circle had appeared in a rye field at Flemingsburg, only 45 miles south of Moorhead in the spring of that year. In light of this additional evidence, could witnesses have really heard a woman screaming as she was being abducted by a UFO? Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Our final story is from the book Mysterious Kentucky, Volume 1, by Barton M. Nunnally, and it's called The Sturgis Vampire. Paranormal investigator Jan Thompson, whose name appears in other sections of this book, is certainly no stranger to the unexplained. Like other Kentuckians, enigmas seem to just naturally cross her path. One did just that, literally, on Christmas morning 1983 in Union County. She writes, quote, It was while traveling these back roads between Sturgis and Morganfield, Kentucky, that a decidedly remarkable creature crossed my path. The incident left me in such utter terror that from then on I refused to drive alone at night along any deserted or isolated country roads again. This wasn't an apparition, a ghostly image, strange voices, or unexplained poltergeist activity. There were no warning premonitions of something watching from the shadows, no omens, no mystic dreams, and no psychic sensations. But all that happened that evening, short as the encounter had been, would become intense memories of profound fear. One that still surfaces sometimes, like right now, sending chills all over my flesh at the time of this writing. It was snowing that evening along Highway 60 on my journey from Evansville, Indiana, where I worked at the time, back to Kentucky to see my family for the holidays. Although it was very late, close to midnight on Christmas Eve 1983, the roads were well-traveled. Not bumper-to-bumper congestion, but enough of a line that it got on my nerves. The cars ahead of me evidently were not sure of the surface of the road as it snowed, and they were keeping to an extremely safe speed, almost 30 miles per hour below the limit. I could not see the beginning of the line as it stretched along into the darkness ahead, nor see the end that drew out behind me. It was just a steady flow of cars going about 25 miles per hour. On a normal evening with dry weather conditions, all these cars would have been stretched far enough apart along the two-lane highway that no one would have known how many there actually were, but that night we were clustered together, going along at the unseen leader's pace. I was confident that I could travel safely at a higher rate of speed, so I decided to take an old country back road that would cut around the parade of cars and hopefully leave me ahead of the traffic where it joined Highway 60 again, about 15 miles down. The old back road I chose ran past some of the abandoned Peabody coal mines, which made for an eerie picture against the peaceful snowfall. The snow itself had been powdery enough that it scattered in whirlwinds as I drove through it, revealing a relatively dry pavement underneath. The heavier snowfall must have stayed north of this road because Highway 60 had been much more slippery and slushy in spots. This allowed me to do at least 35 to 40 miles per hour. The digital readout on the dash read 1217, and I thought to myself, Merry Christmas. At precisely that time, I caught a movement in my peripheral vision coming from a field 
on the left side of the road. My first impulse was that it was a deer running over the expanse of the field and leading upwards and over clumps of brush. Being familiar with the road, I knew that up ahead was a very sharp curve to the right. Letting up on the accelerator and lightly touching the brakes, I slowed my vehicle down to about 20 miles per hour to anticipate the deer crossing my path as it was traveling closer to my side of the road. It remained a murky object until it reached the widespread beam from my headlights, and I saw that this was not a deer, nor was it a four-legged animal of any type. It ran on two legs, human-like legs. As it deliberately moved towards the road from the field, just inside the curve, I feared a collision would ensue. I hit the brakes, bought a few skids, then came to a stop a few yards in front of what had jumped onto the pavement and was standing at a halt in the beam of my headlights. It appeared to be a naked man, relatively tall, about six and a half feet in height, with milky white flesh that blended in with the snow. He was raised up on the balls of his large feet, with his legs slightly spread apart as if preparing to pounce and his particularly hairy back was hunched over slightly, with his arms elevated halfway up from his sides for balance. Its muscles were tight, solid outlines resembling the finely chiseled marble on a statue from a museum. One of the upper leg muscles trembled like a horse after a hard race. Its sexual anatomy was matted with tangles, uncircumcised, and strangely hefty for a human. There was long, thick, disheveled patches of dark brown hair protruding from its body in various odd places, mostly on its upper torso. Its head was covered with the same untamed mess that hung like a lion's mane over its shoulders and down its back. It just stood there, staring at me through the windshield. Its eyes were like red fiber optic lights with no white around the pupils, and they seem to have the same iridescent glow that an animal has when caught in the beam of headlights. There were large clouds of warm air coming fast from its mouth as it momentarily rested from running through the field. Its nostrils were large and flared and seemed out of contour for a human. Between the thick exhales of breath, I could see some color around its mouth, chin, and neck that went down to his chest. It too was red, but this glistened in the light's gleam as something wet would. The large snowflakes fell around its hair, melting when it touched the red liquid that stained its skin. He appeared to have bled liberally recently from a wound somewhere in the face area. My mind was racing with questions and possibilities as to what or whom it was that stood there. Was I the victim of a practical joker? Was it a man who had been in an accident or been attacked and needed help? An escaped convict? Nothing made sense, really, as I took in more of his ragged features. His ribs were revealed with each heave of his breath as if he was malnourished. Patches of hair hung in clumps on the torso. A few scattered leaves clung to his unruly mane. 
His arms were as muscular as his thighs and were abnormally long and slender, and his hands ended in spindly fingers with long, ragged nails. They, too, were covered with what appeared to be blood and dirt. In frightful silence, I studied the figure and saw that the blood and dirt was spread sporadically over its abdomen and on its chest. My eyes went back up to the face. Its breath had slowed, and more of its features were revealed. Its mouth showed boxy, outsized teeth in what appeared to be a hideous grin mixed with saliva and blood and stained pink. Its lips opened wider in warning and revealed two large canines that were thick and longer than the other teeth. Then it licked its bottom teeth with its tongue, running it across his bottom lip. It still maintained an unblinking stare, with eyes that seemed to pulse inside its sunken cheekbones, as if pondering what action to take next. It was in that one tense moment of direct connection when I truly realized the strong difference between beast and man. I was the unwary traveler who had interrupted his beastly movements, and we were now to stand still, awaiting its decision of whether to pass over my intrusion and go onward, or engage in an attack. It closed its mouth, snorted a hefty gust of air, then just as quickly as it had jumped onto the road a few moments before, jumped away to the other side with an uncanny grace, barely touching the ditch and running through the opposite field. I sat there in my car for a few minutes more, looking back and forth at the tracks it had left in the snow and from both sides of the road. The rest of my travels that evening were rushed and a bit too fast for the road conditions, I will admit. When it was time to leave the next day to return to Evansville, I opted to drive during the daylight hours and to stay on the main roads. Back at work that next week, several of my coworkers in the break room were discussing a series of cattle mutilations and farm animal killings going on in various surrounding counties. Some of the cattle were reportedly left alive, others ripped apart, and some just had certain organs removed. These incidents ranged from the farmlands of southern Indiana and down through western Kentucky. There were several guesses as to what was attacking the animals, and they ranged from coyotes, wolves, and one even suggested that aliens did it. I never spoke up as to what I had seen and silently kept the knowledge of that strange nighttime visitor to myself for fear of ridicule. Inside, I knew that the extraordinary creature I had observed that holiday eve could possibly be the culprit to all the carnage the farmers were experiencing. Years later, after I moved back down to Kentucky, I came upon some other witnesses that had seen the same type of creature around the Sturgis area in the same county. It prompted me to do some research, and I did indeed find that this scruffy biped had been given a nickname by locals. They called it the Vampire of Sturgis. Over the years, I listened to stories of even more animals being killed, which included domesticated pets as well, supposedly snatched away from their own yards. 
Relatives or friends of the witnesses that lived in distant counties reported that it had been spotted as far away as Madisonville and then in the Marion and Salem areas of western Kentucky. All the descriptions of the creature ran about the same. Lean looking, naked but with patches of long scraggly hair, humanoid but animalistic in features. Never had I heard it described as a Bigfoot-type creature. It was only last year, 2006, that I was introduced to a plausible explanation from Bart Nunnally, a noted cryptid investigator, that it could have possibly been a Bigfoot with the mange. Since then, I've also heard from other cryptozoologists with the same hypothesis and have read about other sightings with similar, if not the same, descriptions of what I witnessed all those years ago. I tend to agree with this theory as I compare my own portrayal of what I saw that evening with the features of the more commonly seen hairy biped. That's going to do it for this episode, but I will be back very soon with more Kentucky-themed scary stories. If you have a suggestion for a future topic for an episode, you can send me an email to kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com or send me a message on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at kyhistoryhaunts, or you can search the Facebook too. It's Kentucky History and Haunts. There's also a website, kyhistoryhaunts.com, where you can find more links about all the topics. You can find links to buy all the books that I've mentioned in the past and look at a bunch of additional photos related to all the episodes as well. All right, that's all I've got, guys. Thank you for listening, and until next time.